So our text comes to us this morning for the sermon is Psalm chapter 9. Before I read the text and pray, something to notice about Psalm 9 is with any preliminary study, uh, Psalm 9 and 10 uh, are very closely connected. So I had to make a decision of whether of uh, exhorting those together or apart um, because um, Psalm 10 doesn't actually have a beginning, like usually in the psalm there's, uh, well, see, in Psalm 9, there's to the choir master according to Methlaban, a psalm of David. We don't see that in Psalm 10, so that's why one of the reasons it can be taken together together with others. But um, so I had to make a decision that I was going to do it separately um, because I saw there was a similar theme uh, talking about oppression in both but I found it was very strong in chapter 9, though uh, it talks about, I will recount the wondrous deeds of God. When we look at, uh, as I'll draw out later, uh, further passages in, a question that was impressed upon me was, where can the oppressed find hope? Where can the oppressed find hope? And I think this psalm gives us the answer to that. And that'll be our that's the sermon title and theme this morning. So keep that in mind as we're looking at this praise and plea that David gives to the gives to the Lord in Psalm 9. Let's read our sermon text. Psalm 9. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds, for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has a uh, executed judgment, the wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. 
For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you, but them put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Amen. And so I'll now ask that same question I set forward before reading our sermon text. Where can the oppressed find hope? Where can the oppressed find hope? I set forth this question because Psalm 9 mentions the oppressed in verses 9 and the afflicted in verse 12. And then even David himself in verse 13 says, See my affliction. But first looking at 9 and 12, it says, The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Then verse 12, For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He who does not forget the cry of the afflicted. You will notice that most of Psalm 9, David speaks in greater quantity about the celebration of God's justice and just character as he recounts God's wonderful deeds. However, as seen in verse 13 that I just mentioned, David is in the midst of oppression and affliction in his situation against those who hate him. He's calling out in a time where he himself is being attacked by an oppressor, a predator. See, verse 13, Be gracious to me, O Lord, see my affliction from those who hate me, O you who lift up, lift me up from the gates of death. In this psalm, the force of David's praise is undergirded with a plea for grace and mercy. A lot of times in Scripture, when we see that, it's, it's called a lament. In a lament, the psalmist is raising up the trouble that they're in to God. We see that in this case. So though we'll see David recounting God's deeds at this point, point to us, uh, to point us to God's just character in the psalm, David also gives us the answer to the question of where the oppressed and afflicted find their true hope. So as we continue to consider this question, where can the oppressed find hope, we see David answered in Psalm 9. And we'll see it in two parts in answering this question. First, in the first point, we'll call it, the Lord of the oppressed is just. And the second point, the Lord of the oppressed hears. Point one, the Lord of the oppressed is just, and the Lord of the oppressed hears in part point two. And so starting from that first point, the Lord of the oppressed is just, starting in verses 1 and 2, we see David giving us an introduction to what he's going to say in the first part of the psalm. So if any of you have taken a speech class um, in high school, perhaps, or in college, um, what, what, is, what is the rule in making a speech? You tell people what you're going to tell them before you tell them, then you tell them, and then you tell them what you told them. They get it three times, right? Well, David is kind of doing that here. Look at verse 1 and 2. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. David's telling us what he's going to do throughout the rest of this psalm. 
what he's going to tell us about in the rest of this psalm. David is telling us that he's going to lift up public praise, honor, and thanksgiving to the Most High God for what God has done in the past for David and what he's going to do for David. Worth making note here is that David says he gives praise and thanks to God with a whole heart. This reminds us of the law of God in the Pentateuch and in the first five books of the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says, uh, verse 5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Of course, this is repeated on the Sermon of the Mount by the Lord Jesus, or sorry, later in the Gospel, specifically in Mark, uh, Mark 12. But David here is lifting up his praise in acknowledging God. This is one of the purest forms of worship, public honor to God. God is jealous for our praise in the best way because giving praise to him is the best thing we can do. And it requires, but it requires an undivided worship towards himself. Nothing else can be given worship besides God. And specifically, this worship that, and honor that David is giving, he's delighting in God's justice and righteousness, God's character. God is perfectly just. He does always what is right. He gives according to how we act in the world, and he's righteous. He's always, he always does what is right. And so, returning to that, our theme question again, answering our, that question, where can the oppressed find hope? In this section, David shows us to whom. To whom the oppressed and afflicted are to go to when they find themselves in distress. When they find themselves at the end of their rope. When they find themselves being oppressed by an oppressor. To be clear, David is directing Israel the church of Christ, and any who are oppressed to judge, to the judge who is truly just in character and powerful to deliver. We see David doing this in the preceding verses, telling us what he's going to tell us. Um, verses 3 through 12, uh, first with 3 through 6, When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. God not only delivered David from his enemies and enemy nations in the past, but he removed them from memory. They're everlasting in having been perished, having died. Um, he blotted them out of memory for the sake of David's just cause. We must remember that it wasn't because David tried hard enough that he was able to have a just cause and to be righteous in his deeds himself but both his wholehearted worship that we see him giving and the just cause were maintained by God's sovereign hand. And of course, 
the justice and righteousness and just cause we see in David, of course, points us to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is, who was and is perfectly just and righteous. David himself, we know his, his great sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. He wasn't a perfect man, but he was pointing us ahead to the Lord Jesus Christ and his just character, because Christ is God himself. And but, but moving on to verses 7 through 10, David gives further glory to God's eternal and just reign on high. Verse 7 through 10, But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Here we also see directed, uh, sorry, we, here we also see described how God further demonstrates his deeds of justice towards oppressed, providing protection in times of trouble. In verse 10 specifically, David David uh, shows clearly the blessing and benefit of those who know God's name and trust in him. Protection is also provided to believers today. They will always have the assurance that God will never, ever forsake them in this age or in the age to come. So having already covered much ground, we're going to put the brakes on here a little bit and look at verse 9 a little more closely. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Reminding us of our theme question, where can the oppressed find hope? I have, I have said it enough already in the past, but I intentionally have not been defining this key term in our theme question. How do we understand this word oppressed? I've been asking the question, where can the oppressed find hope? What does oppressed mean to David? When he says oppressed, what does that mean? So we'll do a little word study here. The, the Hebrew word there, the pronunciation is not important to us here, uh, but it's uh, used ten times in the Bible, this specific word in, in the Hebrew language. In most English translations, it's used as oppressed, but that's still not answering the question, what does David mean by oppressed? So I, I did a, a little study of my own. Uh, the Septuagint also translate that word, the Greek Old Testament. So Paul's, Paul's Bible, um, St. Paul's Bible that he used in his time, uh, translates this oppressed word, this word oppressed from our Bibles, as crushed in English. Uh, that's one way you could translate oppressed. Um, also in Psalm 7421, uh, it can be translated downtrodden. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Proverbs 26, 28 also uses this word for and translated, translates it as victims. Proverbs 26, 28 says, A lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. And then there was a, a Bible sense dictionary uh, from this passage. It also can mean simply someone who is oppressed by an oppressor, right? So we, we have all these 
different understandings of what David's using, this word that he uses for oppressed. It can also mean crushed, downtrodden victims, or someone oppressed by an oppressor. So with these helps, we can understand that David is referring to someone who has become prey to a predator. Kids, if I was to say or ask you which is the predator and the prey of a lion and a lamb, if, if I was to ask you which one was the predator, which one would that be? The lion, right? So we can understand here, just like a lion is the predator to the prey of a lamb, we can understand that that's the kind of language David is using here for oppressed. The one, uh, an oppressed person is like a lamb being chased after by a lion. And so um, David is referring to all those who are somehow at disadvantage to a stronger oppressor. With regards to those who are oppressed, oppression can take several different forms, right? We don't have time to cover the different forms of oppression today, and we don't, but we don't want to make little of any oppression in the world. But we can find even better understanding of oppression in its origins. Where did the first oppression occur? In the garden, that's right. Back at the beginning in Genesis, the Lord had already given the covenant of works to David by telling him clearly to take dominion of the, over the garden, guard the garden sanctuary, and to rule it by God's explicit word, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Adam knew what he was supposed to do. He was the guardian of the garden. But then following this in Genesis chapter 3, it says in verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Already we see the first and great oppressor emerge in the garden, not as boldly as a roaring lion that he's referred to as in other parts of Scripture, but more like a slippery, yucky oppressor that you parents here and grandparents have nightmares about when you think of your children and grandchildren. This sneaky, slippery oppressor doesn't go to confront the guard and high priest of the garden, we know as Adam, but rather, what does he do? He goes after Adam's flock. He goes after Adam's, uh, whom Adam was to take care of. Satan goes after Eve. We can't say exactly where Adam was during the temptation, but what we do know is that at some point Adam was supposed to confront this oppressor who had set to make Eve his prey. Adam was supposed to come and defend the victim that was being assaulted. He was supposed to guard Eve from assault. Adam was to uphold God's word as God said. Disarming the oppressor when, when Satan presented his word, his contrary word to God's, Adam was supposed to defend against him with God's word. He was supposed to say, nope. 
We are not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He was supposed to then get uh, Satan out of the garden or perhaps even execute him, throw him out, protect and provide protection for his wife. That was what he was supposed to do. However, we know that it didn't play out that way, right? Instead, Adam allowed Eve to be seduced by the lie of the oppressor and joined her willingly in the deception, becoming an oppressed prey with Eve. From that moment forward, in failing to defend God's word and the garden sanctuary, all those descending from Adam by normal birth are oppressed or even oppressors. And many times both, right? I'll explain. We see this when God came to judge Adam. Uh, we see this, you know, we see both oppressed and oppressors when God came to judge them. After they had both eaten of the tree, God came in verse 11 and 12 and said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said in verse 12, The woman whom you gave to me, or the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave it to me. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. What's just happened? Here Adam had already become an oppressor. He was oppressed by Satan, but now because of sin, breaking his whole humanity, breaking his spirit, he was spiritually dead, now driven towards sin, he had become the oppressor like the great oppressor, according to the image of the slippery serpent. In this newfound depravity, Adam had turned into the oppressor and predator, making his wife prey to the judgment he deserved. However, this is a really bad picture of humanity, right? However, praise be to God, God did not come to execute Adam and Eve that day for breaking his word. They deserved to be executed that very day. But what did God do instead? He confronted them, but then he clothed them with a sacrifice. What is that, what is that sacrifice, that clothing that he uh, put on Adam and Eve? What does that point us to? Well, that leads us to our second point. The Lord of the oppressed hears. We understand that God is the Lord of justice and righteousness. He does justice perfectly, but he is also the one who hears the oppressed. He's the Lord of the oppressed and hears them. As we see in our psalm this morning, though God, the God of Scripture, is glorified in his justice, he is also glorified in his grace and mercy. He is the Lord God who hears the oppressed and gives them safety from oppression. Though Adam broke the covenant of works, he didn't receive God's word not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God didn't abandon Adam. He didn't execute him. Rather, God was pleased to make a second covenant. The first covenant had been broken. 
the probation, Adam failed, but God made a second covenant. We see this covenant expressed in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here from the beginning of Scripture, God had made the promise of another Adam, a second Adam who would come and crush the first oppressor and those who align with him, while also perfectly providing refuge and safety and forgiveness for his oppressed people. Not only his oppressed people, but also oppressors who repent and believe in this second Adam. Which brings us to David's prayer in verse 13 of Psalm 9. It says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, see my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death. David here makes it clear that he is among the oppressed of God's people. Though God had rescued David from many oppressors and afflictions from enemies and enemy nations before, he is acknowledging to God once again that he has become prey to a praying predator seeking to afflict him. So what does David do? It's quite simple. He turns to the Lord in prayer. David goes to the Lord who provides the second Adam, the greater David, who will cover our sin, but also provide refuge for us. He's coming to God realizing his undeserved grace, but yet seeking God through the second Adam in this oppression. Of course, he didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ as we do today, but he was seeking God in faith in his affliction. In the same way, the believer can receive clear application from Psalm 9, from David. As a people of God who are oppressed and afflicted and are oppressors, we continue, specifically as oppressed, in spiritual battle against the great oppressor or even uh, expressions of that great oppressor in people afflicting us today. Like David, in the face of oppression, we are, what are we to do? We are to bring our great need to God both in praise and plead. And lament. God doesn't remove himself from our affliction, to be clear. He knows the suffering of his people. We can approach him. We don't have to look at him and say, well, he doesn't care about me. He does. He absolutely cares about his people. We see this echoed in uh, Exodus 3-7 when God says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. The Lord does not delight in the suffering of his people, but he hears their cry and makes ample provision for their rescue. We see this rescue in full expression in our New Testament uh, uh, connection in First. First Peter this morning. The Apostle Peter, in his letter to the people of God, dispersed in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, 
wrote very clearly about suffering. Peter, St. Peter, um, in his time writing to the churches, was writing about suffering, specifically about suffering under persecution and oppression for the name of Christ. Peter here gives a heavy application to the church in how they are to respond to persecution for doing good in honor of Christ. 1 Peter 3, 13-17. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is a difficult text, right? This is a ethic that is above our pay grade. What Peter is calling the church, including the church today to do, is to be in the midst of being reviled, that is, being ridiculed and oppressed for the name of Christ, whether that's in words or in physical oppression. There's people who are being executed for the name of Christ even today, tortured for Christ today, that perhaps, and not to make little of it, say, in, in the college dorm, Maybe your roommate is an atheist and he's ridiculing you, he's reviling you. Maybe you have friends who are um, in the neighborhood. Your neighbor is ridiculing you and saying, quit it with this Christianity stuff. Don't you understand you've been given a false claim? They're coming after you. They're oppressing you. Yet Peter says, that we're to answer them with gentleness and respect. We're supposed to not attack them. We're not to revile them back, but rather we're to suffer through good behavior, good behavior and good words toward them. That's heavy, right? Again, it's above our pay grade. Yet... It is the Christian call. Whether you are under great spiritual battle with the great oppressor in temptation, or you're receiving cutting comments from your neighbor or uh, roommate for being a believer, or you're being executed by torture for the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter has set the standard we are to uphold as believers before oppressors. Let's be clear here, in our own strength, this is not possible. Even if you were able to maybe defend against your neighbor or roommate, um, you were able to you know, make an apologetic approach with gentleness and respect, in your own strength, in your own flesh, you might become, you probably would become conceited not long after you did that. 
outside of Christ's powerful gospel, you will become conceited or Otherwise, you see Peter's ethic that he sets forth, the way we are supposed to respond to those outside of the church, non-believers, non-believing friends of ours, and it's easy to become daunted and give up and despair, right? It's easy to become discouraged. Out of, outside the gospel, it's impossible to do it right. But dear Christian, truly, we can only follow this standard from the gospel. This is what motivates us and enables us to love our neighbor in this way. Look with me at 1 Peter 3.18, following that gospel ethic he sets forth. We hear the gospel clearly in verse 18. For Christ also suffered for sins righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Peter gives us the gospel. It is because Christ, the second Adam, the greater David, suffered persecution and oppression even unto death without reviling, without hatred, rather praying for his enemies because he fulfilled this work for us who believe Jesus, the righteous one, for us, the unrighteous. We have nothing righteous in ourselves. He changed places with us. By his suffering for us, by Jesus coming down from his place as all-powerful judge, coming down in the form of, of humanity, we call that a part of his humiliation, he became oppressed on behalf of sinners, reviled on behalf of sinners, tortured on behalf of sinners, both for the oppressed and those of us, well, many of us who have seen ourselves on the other side as oppressors, those oppressors who repent and believe the oppressed who repent and believe, Jesus died for you. He died for me. Because of that which Christ did, we are able then, by the gospel, to endure the worst oppressions, both spiritual and physical, according to the standard of kindness that Peter lays out in this text. Before his coming, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, we were helpless, helpless to the oppression of death. We're all bound to death by ourselves. But because he suffered as a victim, Jesus became a victim to the great oppressor and yet was raised. He has conquered the great oppressor and has freed believers to live unto God for his glory. And being empowered by the Holy Spirit to live out gospel-powered suffering that is, suffering at our own expense, we receive suffering by the gospel, through the gospel, well, not through the gospel, but from outside, from non-believing friends and neighbors. Through the gospel, God uses that to get non-believers' attention. Through the power of the gospel, setting us free 
from bondage to being oppressed or oppressors, we can rather suffer as victims to the salvation of our neighbors. What do I mean by that? When it's God has designed it in such a way that when they see us living out the gospel ethic of gently responding to our oppressors, and they realize and they understand it is by Jesus, that gets people's attention. They start to ask, how is he able to suffer? How is he able to suffer and reply to me without reviling me and in gentleness and love? How is that possible? Souls are one through suffering. It's amazing. It's beautiful. So my encouragement to you, dear Christian, whatever suffering, whatever oppression may come upon you, don't waste that suffering. Rather, out of the gospel, use it to win souls and to honor Christ. Even uh, maybe this could even come out in your rea- uh, interactions with your non-believing friends. Uh, maybe you're not suffering right now, but maybe you can ask them: Have you ever been through something painful? Have you ever suffered in this life? At least it'll start a conversation, right? Of course, you have to be sensitive and say, when they share those painful things in their lives, you can say, sorry, I'm sorry that that happened to you. And even as the Lord did, weep with those who weep. We saw Lazarus died in John 11. He weeped with Mary. He weeped with Mary Magdalene there. At the tomb, he was weeping with her. Yet at the same time, when you're working with your, or talking with your non-believing friend, you can point them to the gospel in 1 Peter three eighteen. For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous Jesus suffered for the unrighteous. Your suffering is not meaningless. And Jesus knows suffering more than any of us could. You can look to him in times of oppression in the same way David is in Psalm 9. And so, David ends Psalm 9, ends his plea um, in giving honor to God. He, He ends his lament, his ask for God to help him, giving honor to God. What does it say? Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. David acknowledges that God is able to bring judgment on the oppressors of this world who don't repent and don't believe. Yet, We do have this hope as believers that in the second Adam, we can can suffer before a watching world and they can be saved. And so we come to our close. Let's pray together.
Father, we do thank you for your word that you guide us even in the worst oppressions and sufferings in this world. You point us to the gospel and you enable us through the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ suffering for sinners just like us, you empower us to also suffer. We're able to endure suffering. We're able to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel and be a light to the world. Help us to do this by your Holy Spirit through the gospel. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.